Top 5, a show where we laugh it up, we yuck it up, and sometimes we even chortle and shoot milk out our nose. It is Top 5. I have never chortled, nor am I ever going to chortle. I bet you do. I bet you sit there and you go... I do not chortle. If you can find the rare footage of Matthew chortling, yes, send it to us. Podcast at majorspoilers.com. Hey, look, laughing there in the background, one Ashley Victoria Robinson. Hey, Ashley, thanks for joining us this week on Top 5. Was she she chortling? I think it was more of a chuckle. I would say I frequently chortle. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So welcome to the show, Ashley. Uh, Ashley, of course, you can follow her at Ashley V. Robinson. Uh, This week's uh, topic, Top 5 Comedies, and these are Top 5 Movies that are Comedies. And I think Matthew and I might have a lot of overlap. We were kind of talking about this a couple of weeks ago, um, kind of get trying to guess each other's lists. And I was really <laughs> concerned that some of our brand of humor, especially when it comes to movies, might overlap a little bit. And I asked Matthew to guess a couple of mine and they were on my list, but had been switched out with a couple of others. So this might be close. This might be interesting. I have one from this century. Oh, do you? Yeah, m- mine I are do. all old. I don't know what it is. Uh, all of mine are... Because you're old. Well, no, it's not that. It's just that, I don't know, maybe your sense of humor changes as you get older because... What is that quote about Red Red Foreman, Matthew? Uh, you know you're an adult when you identify more with Red Foreman than you do with the idiot children <laughs> in his basement. Yeah. Yes. So I think I'm at that point because there's a lot of comedies that are out now that I don't find particularly funny compared to the stuff that I used to (laughs) laugh at when I was a kid and dumb and young, right? To be fair, I knew you when you were young, and there was a lot more Red Foreman in you then than there was Hyde. (laughs) Oh, quiet you. Oh, I also that to be a rapist, so you don't want to be like the children in the basement, as it exactly. turns out. Yeah, and the other one turned out to be Ashton Kutcher, which I mean, you know, Gonzo Whopper mixed blessing right there. I mean, totally. he's totally a angel investor now. Uh, totally uh, got more money he, than he's buying all the angels he can find and <laughs> selling them, selling them for valuable prices with grit. If I'm not mistaken, yeah, see, those kind of uh, as someone who was currently reading the Amber Spyglass, which has a lot of angels in it, that, that mm-hmm. really tickles me. <laughs> Amber Spyglass is my drag name. (laughs) It's an all right drag name. Rodrigo, you've been mighty quiet. Why don't you start us off this week with your number five, (laughs) top five comedy. Okay. Uh, So my number five is uh, an animated comedy. Okay. Uh, It's also a musical. So a lot fits into lots of categories. Uh, But I, I watched it. Uh, I first watched it when I was a teenager and I watched it with my whole family and there were uh, some really hilarious moments that hit home really hard and also some somewhat uncomfortable moments that hit home really hard. Uh, And that's, uh, of course, a goofy movie. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) A a goofy movie is a movie about a father trying to connect with a son. and about a son who is trying to find his own place and might not want to connect with his dad because that's not necessarily what he sees as as important. Uh, but it's a road trip movie. It's a comedy. Uh, it's got great songs. Um, and and forever thereafter, any time that my mom perceived that I was doing something that my dad would do or you know I accidentally said something that sounded like something my dad would say, she'd go, yep. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, all right, calm down. I, I do like what they were doing with uh, the Goofy movie and Goof Troop and all that. 
Uh, and I thought the addition of Max was interesting, especially as a single father Goofy, right? Right. Uh, but I couldn't stand what they did with uh, with Pete, making him kind of a good guy. Well, so Pete is... They, obviously, they had to change Pete because he can't be tying people to railroad tracks <laughs> Why not? if we're going to make a suburban comedy. <laughs> um, well, first of all, there's no railroads in the suburbs. Yeah, well, that's that's important. Um, but uh, so Pete, it, Pete still has this sort of like dark kind of antagonist role mm-hmm. in that he tries, he like gives Goofy essentially bad advice. Right, right. You know, he thinks he's right and he thinks he's got it all figured out and of course his kids are not having a good, like an easy time of it either. Um, so it's, uh, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's interesting to see Pete transform. If you want to, if you want to see like a, a really schizophrenic, um, or, or just like a, a really kind of poorly thought out version of Pete, you should watch, uh, the Mickey mouse clubhouse oh, believe me, where I it's very clear. That. Yeah, it's very clear that they want him to be a villain, but it's mm-hmm. a show for little babies. Yeah. And they can't ever actually have him do anything that's A, really bad, mm-hmm. or B, be like unapologetic about the fact that, yes, he did something selfish and he was trying to get away with it and they caught him and curse you kids. Yeah. Like he just, like he has to, like, it's it's just like so weird to see someone that is so, like trying to do something bad but everyone has to be nice to each other it just like it just kind of weirdly doesn't work mm-hmm, mm-hmm. no i can see that goof uh, the, the um goofy movie, yeah, goofy I, movie. I, I really enjoyed that uh yeah. when it came out of course i think we were in college when that came out yeah um but like uh, 1989 was it? something like that um still enjoyable though still very funny very funny movie uh ashley we are going to move on to your number five what do you have my number five is an ancient movie by all standards. I think maybe my grandparents were alive when it came out. And if people know me or they know things that I like, they know that I like things with witches in them. And I like things with Cary Grant in them. And this has both of those things. Plus, I learned about it from a comic book called Runaways. And that is Arsenic and Old Lace. Yeah. It's got murder in it, and it's very funny. Yes. And it's also a play, and it's a lot like watching a play, mm-hmm. uh, which is a joke that I made consistently about 1917 when people said, hey, 1917 is uh, it's, it's a one-take movie. And I was like, you mean a play? <laughs> and Arsenic and Old Lace tells the tale of a young, sexy Cary Grant who's going to stay with some old lady relatives and he learns that they are murdering people who come to stay with them. And then they are forced to decide whether or not to murder him. And also they're witches. I don't know how I could appeal to you more to watch this movie. It's truly incredible. And even though some of the jokes are dated, the movie came out, uh, I think of the forties. I still laughed out loud every time I watched it. I find it indelibly charming. And every year at Halloween, there is one grown man who is dressed up as Cary Grant from this movie. (laughs) And when he does it really well, it's a dude who has two old lady puppets. Yeah. So if you've been watching the new season of Sabrina and Hilda and Zelda aren't doing it for you, this is very much what if Hilda and Zelda were actually portly old ladies instead of very adorable lady uh quite young ladies actually Mm -hmm. um 
And then Cary Grant's there doing his best kind of goofy Clark Kent impersonation. And I think this movie kind of gets forgotten, except for by weird, geeky people. I think it deserves to be spoken of in the same breath with um, uh, something like His Girl Friday Mm -hmm. or uh, anything else that Cary Grant has ever been in. Yeah. um, And I think it influenced a lot more... Uh, comedies than you might initially give it credit for but it's one of my favorites i own it on blu-ray i own the physical copy of it and for me if i own a physical copy then it must be pretty important so i put that at my number five arsenic and old lace very very good matthew what is your number five well it's not from 1944 but it is from uh ridiculously early especially if you know you're younger than i am this is a movie that came out in 1970 It's a movie based on a book, which then spawned a television series, each of which is separate, distinct, and completely unable to be actually put together into one continuity. Initially, the book was written about the Korean War. Then they made a movie about the Korean War, which was actually about the Vietnam War. And then they spent 11 years on TV, which is longer than the Korean War, doing really entertaining jokes that are completely different from my number five movie, M.A.S.H., and the thing about MASH that, yeah, the, the thing about MASH that I love is that it feels what I like to call real life messy. It doesn't clean up its plots at all. It doesn't wrap everything up. And it has moments in the film that if you actually go and do the, and I have, I've done the digging to try and figure out what did this actually mean, you'll see a character leaving the 4077 before she actually leaves because of the way they recut the film. And there's a very, uh, it's a a sequence that people talk about a lot where all of the characters are sitting playing cards and looking at a body on a Jeep and it's never explained in the film why this is important because they cut it out and the explanation is that it's actually Hojon, which is one of the, the surgeon's friends. But this sounds terrible. I want you to know that I know this sounds terrible, but the movie's really funny. It's ridiculously funny. It's got Donald Sutherland being so charming. And it's got Elliot Gould in one of the roles where I actually find him tolerable. Because the thing about Elliot Gould is you kind of hate him in everything. This and uh, Ruben from Ocean, the Oceans films are the things where I really like Elliot Gould. I like the character. I like the portrayal. He's not just trying to make me mad. Plus, it's got Gary Berghoff in it, which makes it really creepy because then you realize that Gary Berghoff ends up in the Earth 2 version of the film on the television series. But I don't know if we're allowed to curse on top five, but it ends with the greatest line of all time. Bobby Troop, who's actually one of the doctors from a show called Emergency that I also love, looks at the camera, breaks the fourth wall and says, GD Army. And then we cut to the credits. And for some reason, that ending always makes me laugh harder than anything else in the film. And that may say more about me than it does about anybody else. But if you've never seen MASH, I'll warn you, it's definitely an acquired taste. And if you love the television show, it's not the same thing, you guys. But I once made a friend for life because we were in a workplace setting and somebody said to me directly, who the H word do you think you are? And I looked at him and I said, we're the pros from Dover. We are here to help. And this woman now followed me everywhere throughout that workplace because I referenced MASH, my number five movie. 
Whether that's a good thing or not, I'll, we'll talk about it in a different episode. Yeah, there you go. All right, my number five, 1985's Fletch, starring Chevy Chase. Now, this is a film that uh, is based on a book uh, called Fletch. And in this movie, and actually it's a series of books uh, mm-hmm. about this uh, investigative reporter uh, who works for the L.A. Times, does things his own way. Uh, it's kind of a little bit of a detective uh, series. Uh, I will say that the movie is much funnier than the book, uh, although the book does have a lot of dry humor. Um, but um, the plot is that there's this millionaire who comes to Chevy Chase or to Fletch and says, hey, uh, I'm, I've been uh, diagnosed with terminal cancer. Uh, If you kill me, I'll give you a million dollars and then all this money goes to all the right people when I die. And Fletch thinks that there's something weird with this. And so he stumbles and fumbles his way, as Chevy Chase often does, uh, to the conclusion of who's really trying to kill whom. And uh, as a kid, I found this super, super funny because there are a lot of just real quick non sequiturs. There's a lot of sass talk. From Chevy Chase uh, uh, to his uh, supervisors and to people who are in a higher power than him. It's got Gina Davis in it. So anytime that you have Gina Davis in a film, that is always funny as well. Uh, I think the funniest part in this, and this is still has me laughing today, is uh, Chevy Chase gets involved with the this millionaire's wife. Um, and she's at the country club and uh, he knocks on her cabana and she comes to the door in a towel and uh, he says... Um, my car just hit a water buffalo. May I borrow that towel? And that's the that's the pickup line that um, that he uses. I always thought that that was the funniest pickup line until I tried it myself, and and it worked. So something about <laughs> Fletch uh, still kind of resonates with me in that uh, I like the 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 goofiness of it. Uh, you know, twenty five years later, we find out Chevy Chase is probably not the nicest person in the whole wide world. Uh, but uh, Fletch is still a funny movie, and if you want something that is lighthearted and a detective story, uh, this is a pretty good comedy. Uh, it's technically called a neo-noir comedy thriller. Uh, so there you go, 1985's Fletch. Yeah, uh, you ever serve time, Doc? Yeah, yeah. Moon River. Uh, don't ever watch, uh, what is it, Fletch 2 or Fletch Lives, because that is just Fletch awful. Lives. It's just awful. It's not very good. It felt rushed. But the first Fletch, I think, still for its time period, if you remember that it's, you know, 1985 and not uh, 2025 or, 20, you know, 1995 even, I think it still holds up very, very well. All right. Uh, let's flip back around and uh, hit our number fours. And Rodrigo, what do you have for your number four? Uh, my number four, uh, by the way, uh, Goofy Movie 1995. Oh, wow. Um, uh, my number four is uh, Singing in the Rain, 1952. Um, oh, man, we about did a this. whole podcast about that once. We did. And where is it? I don't Nobody know. Nobody knows. Nobody knows. <laughs> just lost the time and space. So Cthulhu liked it so much that he just kept it. Um, so Singing in the Rain is, uh, I think, a very well-regarded musical. But it's also actually a really funny movie. Um, in large part due to um, Gene Hagen, uh, who plays Lena Lamont, basically uh, comedically kind of carries this movie. She's the villain. She is um, like uh, an opportunistic and, and like mean person, but she's also kind of adult, uh, adult, um, and. <laughs> 
that uh, really kind of fuels a lot of the comedy in the movie. Um, it's uh, if you are willing to put up with the fact that inside this movie there's a much there's a smaller, more boring movie um, <laughs> that's all dancing, uh, singing in the rain. Uh, I think is definitely holds up as a as a really you know cute, funny musical which is apparently a jukebox musical. I didn't know that uh, the, mm-hmm. the first few times I saw it. Uh, but that just makes it uh, that much more impressive that, that they managed to like string all that stuff together. And it also makes sense why some random songs are there. It's like, this song doesn't make a lot of sense here. It's like, oh, okay, well, they had to put it in. I think it also has your favorite line in the whole uh, whole of all movie dumb, right? I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. Yeah, yeah. that's right. <laughs> I, I quote Singing in the Rain a surprising amount. Uh, surprising because no one else remembers lines from singing in the rain. Right. So, um, I, yeah, it's just like, uh, you know, what am I dumb or something? (laughs) So uh, yes, definitely. An incredibly quotable movie as well. If you were like 20 in 1952. So, Mm -hmm. you know, call up your grandma Mm -hmm. and be like, Hey, what do you, how do you feel about singing in the rain? My grandma was 20 in 1937. She oh, was like 45 or something. I'm sure that's, that's, I'm sure she liked it then. It's good times. Ashley, what do you have for your number four? My number four is maybe, let me look, maybe my most modern comedy. Yes, I think so. Uh, and it's not super, super modern. And that is, oh, brother, where art thou? Oh, yeah, very and good one. I'm sure someone out there is screaming that it's not a comedy because it's based on the Odyssey. And if you don't think it's funny, like, bro, that's your problem. That's not my problem. Because it <laughs> is based on the Odyssey. It's an incredible Coen Brothers movie. And they kind of do, half of their movies are funny and half of their movies are serious. And while I think Burn After Reading is very, very funny... I think Good Brother Where Out Thou is structurally better, and that's probably because it has more of a backbone being based on the Odyssey. And if you're not familiar with the film, it is based on the Odyssey to the point where there's even a Cyclops. Yep. And it doesn't feel weird or out of place. I also really, really happen to like when George Clooney is playing a complete and utter idiot. Mm-hmm. And this is <laughs> the absolute peak of George Clooney playing a complete and utter idiot. But the smart guy of a trio of idiots, which makes it even funnier. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The most confident of the idiots. And the music, I think, is really what ties it all together. Because, yes, it's very funny. Yes, it's a classic hero's journey. It's the up and down classic story structure that we all know. But the music is so good, as sung by the Dapper Dance, named after the hair pomade, that you even think at some point, is that George Clooney? actually singing it's so well matched it's so delightful and even when they are you know doing their hell allegories and the characters are at their peak of suffering it's still delightful it's still wonderful it's still whimsical and fairy tales do tend to be uplifting but they're not always going to make you erupt laughing and spit liquid all over the place but this one will my friends and if you haven't (laughs) seen it or if your close personal friends haven't seen it 
I just can't recommend that you go do it enough. You know, if you're a high school student who's got to read the Odyssey, you just skip it and write your paper on, oh, brother, where art thou? I'm sure that'll go over really, really well for you. Turned him into a horny toad. Oh, my God. I mean, <laughs> it's so funny and yeah. so quotable. Ain't this place a geographical oddity? Three weeks from everywhere. Yeah. That's uh, how I've heard parts of Kansas described. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty (laughs) much. You would not be too far off the mark. All right. uh, Let's see. What are we at? Matthew, you're with your number four. Is that where we are at? My number four, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, children of all ages, welcome to the 21st century with my number four, a 2001 movie, which means it's barely in the 21st century. And depending how you count, it's the first year of the 21st century, but it still counts because... It's funny, it's hysterical, and I laughed at it. My my number four, Wet Hot American Summer. I grew up uh, in the 80s, so I loved the state when I was in college, and most of the state is in this movie. But it also has amazing performances from people who I, I guess now are famous. There's this guy, Paul Rudd, who hasn't aged in 20 years, but he's totally in this movie. And uh, what's her name with the face? Elizabeth Banks, I love her. And uh, perhaps the greatest performance ever by John Benjamin as a can of vegetables. And if you've ever heard John Benjamin's voice, and you know that John Benjamin does one voice and this is it, he does it here too, but somehow it works in a, in a completely different way than every other place that he does it. I, it's hard to describe this movie other than to say that it's kind of a love letter to stupid 70s camp movies. But it's not just that, because it also has multi-level, multi-layer references to just ridiculous things across the quadrant. And I want to say, I'm going to say probably nine out of ten times the jokes land hard. And it has one of the single darkest jokes I have ever seen. And then it just, boom, it, it completely evaporates and they go back to the goofy, ridiculous, you know, humor with no real status quo and no rules. But for that moment, that joke is the, the most horrifying thing ever. And you cannot help but laugh. And if you've ever seen the sequence where they run into town to get some beers and have some fun, you know exactly what I'm talking about. But uh, for a movie that features at least four or five deaths and a couple of moments that should not be funny and yet somehow are, and also has perhaps the greatest performance from uh, Janine Garofalo, whom I love. I mean, seriously. Janine Garofalo, for the last 35 years, has been on my list of five people that uh, I tell my wife if I meet her, uh, just pack my bags and I'm going. So if you want to see Matthew's crushes, if you want to appreciate the humor of, of complete absurdity with heart and somehow a weird sense of truthiness, if that's a thing, definitely go rent it, check it out on the Netflix or wherever you can find it. I don't even know how these things work. Wet Hot American Summer. All right. Very cool. Uh, I just realized all of my movies tend to have uh, characters that are going against the grain, uh, going against the norm, counter, not really counterculture, but certainly uh, counter to anti-establishment films. And so if you're talking about teenage anti-establishment films, then boys and girls rush right out and check out Ferris Bueller's Day Off from 1986. Uh, Here's the story about Ferris. Everybody loves him. Everybody wants to be him, including maybe Cameron. I don't know. I don't really believe in that conspiracy theory. But he decides that he is going to take the, the day off, and it is the last day off that he can take before it affects his permanent record. And so he's going to have the wildest, craziest time 
So he steals his uh, best friend Cameron's uh, father's car, grabs his girlfriend Sloane and Cameron, and uh, they go and run off and have a sightseeing tour of Chicago doing all the crazy things while uh, Principal uh, What's-His-Face uh, tracks them down slowly, slowly, but surely. And I always thought Ed this Rooney. was... Yeah, Ed Rooney. Um, I always thought this was a funny film just because of the things that Ferris was able to do, you know, using his... Um, his MIDI keyboard to simulate his cough or to play the wheezes so that when the parents came in, he had it rigged up. So it looked like his body was turning over and snoring or the way that he had his um, doorbell hooked up to make it sound like he was actually answering the phone. Uh, and then his, um, then his uh, sister uh, played by uh, Jennifer, Jennifer, what's her face? Um, Jennifer gray. Yeah. Jennifer gray. That's right. She's married to, uh, to Colson uh, of all people. Uh, really? from, from the MCU. Yeah, 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 yeah. I did not know that. Mm-hmm. Yep. And uh, it just turns into this crazy comedy of, uh, you know, both sibling rivalries and what it means to have a day off and just make the most out of life. And I find it very refreshing and very entertaining, although today uh, I can still identify a little bit with Ferris, uh, but I kind of start to lean more towards his parents who are kind of out of touch with their kids. But there you go. Ferris Bueller's Day Off, 1986. My number four. Okay, let's get our number threes. This is where things I think are going to get really interesting. And Rodrigo, what is your number three? My number three uh, favorite comedy uh, is uh, The Book of Life. Mm -hmm. It is a movie that still cracks me up when I watch it. Um, it it's got a lot of sort of uh internally like just just plot wise it's got a lot of jokes um but also it has a lot of uh, references to mexican culture uh which are uh kind of played in a in a humorous way um so i i, I don't know i just really enjoy it there's this i think i talked about it before there's a scene where um, after like three of the character, like two or three of of the characters that we know have died, um, uh, one of the sort of surrogate audience to the story uh, is like, "Why are Mexicans obsessed with death?" And it's like, it is. It's just like a whole big thing about death, um, and uh, that that always cracks me up when I see it. I actually love that character in particular, um, but I don't remember what he's called. He's just like a kid in a field trip. Uh, it's got uh, Christina Applegate in it. It's got Kate Del Castillo, Diego Luna, um, Channing Tatum. Uh, and it uh, always kind of uh, is, is an important movie, I think, for me to remember. And I think for like filmmakers to watch, to to have like kind of this important asterisk in anything you do. And that is if you're going to cast someone to play a character make sure they can pronounce their own characters' names. Because Channing Tatum, they give him Joaquin, and he just, he has a tough time with it. Um, but That's yes. so funny, but I feel like in absolutely the most inappropriate and wrong way possible. Yeah, yeah it's, it's okay. It's, it's meta funny as well. Um, the soundtrack is really good. Uh, oh yeah, there's, all, there's another part that I really like which is that uh, when our protagonist first gets to the land of the dead, he is given a ride by someone else. And then they go down this like really steep incline. That's kind of like a roller coaster. And instead of like the protagonist screaming, the guy who's giving him the ride starts <laughs> screaming. 
And it's like, why? Presumably you do this all the time. I don't know. It, like every time I see that, it just makes me laugh really hard. I love that moment in the movie. Uh, Book of Life. If you haven't seen it, check it out. It's good times. Um, you know, uh, movies by uh, Mexicans about uh, dying. It's good times. <laughs> Ashley, what do you have for number three? Oh, well, my number three is a very old movie. It's in black and white, just like my number five. And I put it at my number three and I put it this high on the list for one scene in the whole movie. And it's not because the rest of it isn't brilliant. But if you have never seen the mirror scene from Duck Soup by the Marx Brothers, I need you to pause this. Go watch it. It's like eight minutes long on YouTube and then come back. Okay, thank you. Welcome back. Didn't your whole world just change? Mimes are super funny, guys. And we think mimes are lame. And that's dumb. Because Mr. Bean is the most famous mime of all time. And this whole sequence is an unspoken sequence. There's almost no cuts during it. And it's just because these two dudes worked so well together. We could do a top five Marx Brothers movies. And while most of the same films would all appear on it, they would be in different orders. But I think Duck Soup and Night at the Opera are the two that would be most close to the top. And for me, Duck Soup is slightly more absurd. And it is the one that appeals to me a little more. The name tells you all you need to know about the movie, which is to say nothing, but it's wild. And it's so genius that if you really try to string the plot together, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. But you will still leave absolutely laughing. And as a creative person very inspiring this is a movie that i like to check out even though it is impossible to find online you have to own it which is such a tragedy because i can't figure out how to buy movies on youtube i don't know how to do it i've tried so many times and they won't take my (laughs) money um which is unfortunately the only place you can find the marx brothers canon but this is a movie that i own in physical media form and i will return to when i am stuck on something creatively because not only the problem solving within the so-called narrative of the movie to get from point A to point X mm-hmm. is really, really creative. But they do things that at the time had never been seen before and to this day have never been seen before. And again, my whole argument is go watch the mirror scene. If you're not laughing, <laughs> I guess we're yeah. just not going to be friends. No. And the thing to keep in mind, this is pre-code. Hollywood movie. So you oh, get yeah, away dude, with a lot more than violent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You can <laughs> get away with a lot no of stuff. No one died making this movie is shocking. I mean, Thelma Todd, who was like one mm-hmm. of their girls, she got murdered way later by her ex, but like no one died making this movie. Oh, yeah. It's a feat. Hail, hail Fredonia. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, let's see. Matthew, what, what is your number three? I'm just stunned by hail, hail Fredonia. My number three comes from a time in my life when I could not afford cable. Uh, I was newly married, and I lived in a terrible house in Hayes, Kansas, which anyone will tell you, a terrible house in Hayes is what they call a house. But I'm not going to make fun of Western Kansas because it's one of the places that I grew up, and it still exists, and many people out there still live there. But when you didn't have cable in Western Kansas and your house was terrible, sometimes your house would howl all night long and your wife would cry. So in order to keep your wife from crying, you, and by you I mean me, would put a movie in the uh, VCR so as to hide the noise of the howling house that sounded like wolves coming to eat you until she fell asleep. And so I had a bunch of movies that I would watch, and one of the movies that was in regular cycle 
where we would get in bed about nine o'clock, we would put the movie on and we would go to sleep was 1993 Groundhog Day. A lot, a lot of the things that I love when it comes to comedies, and by the way, you can tell me this is not a comedy all you want, and you're wrong. Um, I think it's a romantic comedy, but it's still got comedy right in there. Groundhog Day is not as as slapsticky or as overt as many of the things that I really love and find funny. It's not as in your face as many of the things that I find funny. And it's very bleak. It's very dark. And honestly, what it comes down to is that this super funny movie is actually about a terrible man being tortured for possibly centuries until he decides to stop being a douche. And it's a wonderful motive at the end. And you're like, okay, this makes perfect sense. It's finally something where he learned that he had to accept these things. He had to become a better person. Some people say that he was in a time loop for 10,000 years. Yep. That's what the, uh, the director uh, said. Well, sure. But the director, he's dead. What does he know? Um, <laughs> rest in peace, Harold. We love you. Um, but here's... <laughs> That's quite possibly the most terrible thing I've ever said on no, any of our podcasts. No, I'd it, like to it, it's not, but it's close. I would put it in the it's top five worst things that Matthew's ever said. Top five worst things Matthew's ever said. <laughs> yeah, next, next time. Episode. Yep. <laughs> yeah, um, I'm going to say some more things as soon as we get off the air. But here's the thing: if you spend ten thousand years in a time loop and evolve your soul to the next level of humanity, and you do it in a way that is as much fun as uh, Bill Murray's Phil Connors. Even, you know, 35 years later when they did that Jeep commercial, I'm like, aw, I hate this commercial so much and I want to punch everyone, but Bill Murray is such fun. It's a, it's a, a touching film. It's a sweet film. It's really, really funny. And it's funny in subtle ways. At one point, Bill Murray steals the groundhog so that winter and so that spring won't come, so that tomorrow we'll have to show up. And there's this long sequence of Murray driving in a truck with a groundhog and just riffing. All right, side of your eye, side of your eye. Always check your mirrors. And just Bill Murray talking to a groundhog makes me giggle. It's one of the movies that I watched and enjoyed with my grandmother, who, by the way, as we mentioned earlier in the show, born in 1917, doesn't have any bearing on this. But it is why the movie is my number three, Groundhog Day. Uh, who's the female lead in that? Is that Andy McDowell? Yep. Yes, it's Andy McDowell. I really We're like Andy McDowell. in that square, square jaw. Oh, yes. She's such a striking woman. And she's never had a decent movie to her name, and it's a shame. Mm. All right. My number three, Ashley's uh, Duck Soup is kind of an absurdist comedy. And certainly my number three also falls kind into <laughs> the absurdist comedy uh, area, and that's Better Off Dead. Now... I went to my uh, the junior prom after prom party, and this is where we used to go after the prom was over. We'd all drive to a bowling alley and they'd lock us in uh, until like four in the morning or something and then send us home. Uh, And then that way the parents knew we weren't out drinking and that kind of stuff. So they had all sorts of things, bowling and video games and all this stuff. And they had movies playing off in one corner. And so I'm wandering around looking and seeing what everybody else is doing, hanging out, having fun. And I walk in and I see this weird thing where this kid is in the back of a dump truck and these two guys are looking and they're like, that's a terrible waste of a perfectly good white boy. And I'm like, what is this thing? And then I sit down and, and it's got, uh, it's got the guy from moonlighting is in it. 
I'm pretty sure he was in Moonlighting before this movie. I can't remember what the order was. This is uh, ni- no, 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 no. Um, Booger. This is 1985. No, this, is, this is before. Okay, so, but this is definitely after um, uh, Revenge of the Nerds. I'm pretty sure it's after Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, maybe not, but it doesn't matter because Revenge I recognize this guy. Eighty-four, so yeah, I think. So. Yeah, I recognize this guy. So this uh, this was actually out on VHS, not in the theater. So this would have been like in 87, 88 is by the time that I saw it. Um, but then I realized, oh, this is John Cusack. Uh, what is with all this animation? Why is he diving into this really deep dive of uh, his inner monologue? And this monster is constantly talking to him and he's trying to get with this girl when it's clear that the French girl across the street is really in love with him. And then that guy from uh, uh, <laughs> what's the what's the TV show that he was in uh, with uh, WKRP's uh, Dan Dan. What's his name? Dan Schneider. Yeah, Dan Schneider. Words. Yeah, yeah, yeah. R- Ricky Smith. <laughs> Dan Schneider was in this, but I, you know, uh, oh, Dan Schneider God. was also in the uh, the show with the uh, WKRP DJ. I forget what that one was. Head of the class. That's what Head it was. Head of the class. Yeah. yeah. And I'm just like, what is this movie? And I sat down and I ended up watching the whole movie. And then um, they were going to start another movie. And I went over to the person who had rented the, the movies for the night. And I was like, can I borrow this for the rest of the weekend and bring it back to you on Monday so that you can turn in? And she's like, yeah, sure. So I took this movie home and watched it probably three or four times just that weekend because I just thought and it was Steven so never gave funny. Us back. I did because I'm kind of a good kid that way. And I didn't want to get in trouble because back then, if you didn't turn a movie in, it was like 90 bucks to pay for the movie. <laughs> Today, it would have been like $5 rental return fee or something. But back then, $90. Back uh, so in those days, Steven had to carry eight reels home. Yeah. That's right. Just to watch that. Actually, watch going it. back to Ashley's Duck Soup, when I was a kid... Uh, I, I, my parents had eight millimeter film and occasionally we would find oh these goodness. eight millimeter, uh, pre-programmed things. So I had some like, uh, three stooges stuff. I had some Laurel and Hardy stuff. Of course it's all silent. So I never, so and they would so intercut good. it. I had a full service. I, I thought a, your sister was going to learn to play the piano. <laughs> along with them. I had, a, I had some Popeye <laughs> stuff and I had a Phil Silver's movie where they intercut with, you know, like, uh, dialogue uh, screens, text screens, but I had the complete in one reel that, that sequence of the mirror thing. Uh, so yeah, I did, I did carry many reels of film around with me. Actually, I edited my first film was eight millimeter that I had to edit. So good times, but yes, better off dead. It is so absurd. It is so crazy. It is so off the wall from uh, director Savage, Steve Holland, that for years I was trying to track down anything else he might've done. And of course I stumble across uh, what is it? One crazy summer. Mm-hmm. Not as good and kind of the same thing, but you do have to go back to better off dead as the starting point for this stuff. And if you yeah. recognize Savage Steve's uh, Holland's style, anytime you see it pop up in another piece, you'll go, why does this feel like better off dead? And then suddenly you're like, oh, Savage Steve Holland either did the art for this. He animated it. He directed it. Uh, he worked on, uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show. He worked on VIP, of all things. Um, uh, Zoe 101 for a couple of episodes. And the most recent thing that he's worked on is, uh, what is it called? Um, Bizarre, Bizarre Aardvark or something uh, from a couple Bizarre of years ago. Vark? Bizarre Vark. Yeah, that's it. Wow. But, that's funny. man, Better Off Dead, if you have not seen it, to me, it is absurdist comedy at its finest, just in how weird things get dancing hamburgers constantly running into uh, the same guy each time 
uh, two Asian uh, fellows who never learned to speak English, but the only English One they did no learn English, to speak. The other learned from the wide world of sports. Yes, from listening to so Howard Cosell. So you tell Cosell. me which is better, speaking no English or speaking Howard Cosell? Yeah, it is just so weird. Now, it is a product of the time. I will say that there are some moments in there that are just like, eh, that's kind of no. But uh, at the time period, it was it was the best thing. And Bump Ferris Bueller's day off, off, off my uh, favorite uh, comedy list for a long time. Wow. Okay, number two. Number two. two. My number two, I think, is going to be a a surprise for a lot of people, but we got to wait a little bit because first we have to listen to Rodrigo's number two, which I think is also going to be a great comedy. Yeah. So uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I I sat down with some friends to watch uh, Disney's Treasure Planet. Oh, boy. And it really brought up uh, just in, in very sharp uh relief that the best adaptation of treasure island by far is actually muppet treasure island <laughs> uh from from 1996 uh, muppet treasure island is has been one of my favorite movies for a long time i i, I after watching treasure planet uh my wife had never seen either of those so i i waited a couple of weeks and then i showed her muppet treasure island and uh, she cracked up at it a few times, which is all I'm really asking for. Uh, but a lot of the times she was like, man, remember in Muppet Treasure, or remember in Treasure Planet when like they did this instead of this very obvious bit? Um, so uh, this is also a musical, um, stars the Muppets. So Kermit the Frog plays the captain. Um, it stars like a kid as Jim Hawkins, uh, as is often the case in Muppet movies. There's at least a handful of humans. Tim Curry as Long John Silver, just obliterating the scenery, just chewing it up like nothing else. Um, and and great because you know he has to compete with like a, a bear and a rat and a whatever Gonzo is. And He's a weirdo. So, yeah, so it's. Uh, it's great. The songs are great. Um, the The songs themselves are funny. There's um, this early song where you know there's it's kind of like here we go, like off to adventure kind of song, and they establish that you sing the verse, and then they the basically the chorus repeats the last thing you said. Um, so it's like sailing sailing for adventure. Uh, off the bounding main, and then they like repeat that, right? So uh, there's like this like weird group of rats that have gotten on the ship as uh, that are tourists. Basically, Rizzo is selling places on the ship to tourists, um, and as they're singing about going to adventure, the rats come up and they're like margaritas at the midnight buffet, and all the <laughs> sailors like in their gruff voices repeat margaritas at the midnight buffet. <laughs> It's great. It's great. It's like it's really funny. It's really quick. Like you know, they don't uh, they they hit all the major Treasure Island beats quickly, and there's lots of like little goofy stuff in the middle. Um, you know, it's like Long John Silver has a pet lobster instead of a parrot because you know they're the Muppets, and why not? Um, dead Tom's always been dead. That's, that's why right. They, they Dead Tom. Uh, they killed Dead Tom. He's always been dead. Um, yeah, like, I, I could just go on, on and on. They're like introducing people and they're like, uh, you know, you just progressively see like weirder and weirder Muppets, uh, 
And then finally, they're like, it's like ugly, terrible baby eating O'Brien. And it's this like really cute lady comes out and she's like, aye, aye. And I, I don't know. It's good times. Uh, Muppet Treasure Island, uh, check it out. It's good times. And plus, it's uh, like a kids movie. So it's like an hour and a half tops. Mm-hmm. Yep. All right, Ashley, what is your number two? My number two is one that someone alluded to earlier, and I don't remember who. And it is one of the many movies that sort of heralded in the screwball romantic comedy. And that is Bringing Up Baby. Because not only is it an adorable movie, and not only is it on the American Film Institute's top 100 films to watch, it has Cary Grant and Katherine Hepburn, too all-time great people who I love on screen and will watch do absolutely anything. They fall in love even though they hate each other because they wind up at a party together and the back of her dress gets ripped and she's embarrassed so he helps her escape and then they wind up looking after a giant jaguar or leopard, I don't remember, question mark, (laughs) that at one point gets swapped out for a not-as-friendly jaguar slash leopard question mark and tries to kill them. There's a scene where Catherine Hepburn is wearing a negligee and talking in that alto voice on the telephone and petting the jaguar slash leopard question mark that is contrasted with the two very handsome leads running through the forest trying not to be murdered by the evil jaguar slash leopard question mark later in the film. At the end, they kiss faces and it's so gratifying and they're so sharp. And the dialogue, because they're so whip smart and they are dead letter perfect, is just piled on top of each other. And I think that we could use more smart people in romantic comedies. I think that's something that the golden age of cinema really nailed. And now we like to watch sometimes people who are not as good as the person they're pursuing fall in love with each other. And I wish we would go back to smart people who wind up in stupid situations and have to make sure that they're not murdered by animals. Although PETA would probably be mad at that because there's no way that any of the exotic animals on that set were treated respectfully. I'm sure they weren't. I'm sure they were not. There's also several scenes where you're like that, person truly almost passed away to film this mm-hmm. okay um but it is a classic for a reason and it's because people were in danger uh it's lovely and it set the standard for a lot of films that came after it it's another one that i can return to over and over again and not get tired with and i'm not much for rom-coms and the fact that i like that of any of them i thought it deserved to be high on the list yeah if i'm not mistaken that was an influence for um hudsucker proxy Yes, I believe so. Yeah. Pretty sure that's a leopard, too. Honestly, it's black and here's, white, so I am even less capable of understanding. Here's, <laughs> here's what I remember. Here's what I remember about the cat from Bringing Up Baby. I don't remember which one it is, but I know they call it the wrong one. Either it's a leopard, they call it a leopard, but it's actually a jaguar, or they call it a jaguar, but it's actually a leopard. Oh, that's really funny. <laughs> I know its name is Baby, and that's all yeah. you really need to know. Yep, yep. there you go. <laughs> Look, look like a leopard to me. I don't know. Yep. Matthew, what is, what is your number two? My number two comes from a wonderful Halkian time of my past, a time when, uh, well, here's the thing. I was raised by teachers. Uh, my grandmother 
in whose home I mostly grew up, uh, didn't like the cursey words. Uh, they were they were coarse, and she would use them on occasion, but she would use them sparingly so that they had super super powerful hit. The first time I heard her uh, f bomb, I was twenty two years old, and I nearly passed out. But when I left the house, I didn't feel that those words were in any way useful or necessary to the vocabulary of a true gentleman. And so when I saw clerks, uh, Kevin Smith's uh, ode to people working in a convenience store, with its use of the F word and some really, really questionable other words too, I went, oh my God. You can use these terrible words. You can use these curse words and be funny and be clever and be smart, mostly. Um, and you can you can do things with words. Got Kevin Smith, uh, one of the quotes that I remember that I actually use in my parenting is, there are no bad words. Uh, bad words bought my house, is what Kevin Smith told his daughter. And I try to tell my daughter that, even though that's not true to us. Uh, the, the film is basically a day in the life of an ineffectual uh, schmuck behind the counter with his terrible friend. I admit in college, I really wanted to be Randall. And now looking back 25 years later, I'm extremely embarrassed of wanting to be Randall because so aside glad from- that you're not Randall. <laughs> right. Well, and this is the thing, aside from having some really smart comebacks here and there and being the one character who comes through the film without being horribly traumatized. And if you've seen the alternate ending, murdered. Oh, yeah. um, horrible. Horrible yeah, alternate a, ending. That is a terrible ending. And whoever told Kevin to pull that ending, that person should be in the space program. Well, I think he's actually was... in jail right now, so. Oh, was that guy? <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, we won't talk about that. Um, but <laughs> Dante's day really encapsulates a lot of what young adulthood is about, but also with terrible, over-the-top, psychotic stuff. And, you know, sometimes in life you get bored. I actually got bored the other week, and I went on Google uh, Maps to try and find the quick stop, and it still exists. Yep. And at the time that I went, I went on Google Maps, and I looked at the quick stop, and the building next door, RST video is gone, but at the time when I was looking at the map of Leonardo, New Jersey, you could see the RST video sign inside the abandoned store next to the still operating quick stop in Leonardo, New Jersey. And it's, I think it's still operated by the same couple. Um, I don't know if the sign is still there because I believe Kevin may have bought part of that space and is now running a restaurant out of it. I don't know. I, I don't I don't um, know. I just know that the last time he was talking about clerks, it was the same same people that no. still owned it. Uh, yeah, they're still running, which makes so. sense. It's a small town in the middle of nowhere. I mean, isn't serve still owned by the same people after 35 years? No, they sold. I mean, it's ah. still, I, they sold the, fran I mean, they bought into a franchise, so it's not technically an independent gas station anymore. It's part of a Philip 66 franchise. Oh, that's a bummer. And you know, it's, it's a movie that uh, has just horrific jokes. I mean, things that, uh, when, when we talk about dark humor, this film has a lot of it. Uh, there's a sequence at a funeral that you can't really talk about in, in public. And there's a sequence with a man who dies that you can't really talk about on a family podcast. And there's a thing with Dante's ex-girlfriend that you just can't, you can't really even allude to on a family podcast. But if you're over 18 and you're not offended by cursing and you want to see smart people be real bastards for about 86 minutes, you can do no wrong if you go and see Clerks. It's the film that put Kevin Smith on the map. 
Uh, whether you consider that to be a blessing or a curse is up to you. Your mileage may vary. It's my number two. All I know is when that came out on video, a uh, mutual friend for at least three of us, Brian Dennett, was, mm. uh, had, his, had a chance to get it, but it was like one of those one-day rentals, so he had watched it. And then he wouldn't stop talking about it for like two or three days. He's like, you got to get it. 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 You got to get this movie. You got to get this movie, man. man. it was one of the hardest movies to get because the OK Video had only uh, bought one copy and everybody wanted it. Yeah, it took me about three weeks before I was finally able to get it to watch it. And again, it was another one. It's just like, oh, at the end, you rewind it and start it again. That was yes, uh, that good. Yeah, 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 yeah. I have stuck it on my DVR. Four DVRs running now. Every time I get a new DVR, the first thing I do is go look for a showing of Clerks. So I have it just in case you need it. Okay. Can I borrow These your DVR? Happen. Can I borrow your DVR? I need to watch Clerks. No one can borrow my DVR. It's my <laughs> DVR, and that's the point. See, this is the thing. People are like, oh, well, why don't you just use streaming? Why don't you just use media? Why don't you use your DVD player? Because I am fundamentally lazy. And if I come home and I can push a button and turn on the cable and Clerks is right there, I can watch Clerks without having to do anything complicated. If I have to push three buttons and find it on the Netflix, then I'm probably not going to do it because – Honestly, uh, my life is encapsulated by the phrase, can you start my orange? So, yeah, that's my number two. <laughs> my number two, 1987. It is one in a long list of John Hughes movies. And when you first hear it, you're going to go, oh, is that really a comedy? And it's like, yeah, it's a it's a buddy comedy. It is a road comedy. It is uh, Abbott and Costello. It is, uh, you know, it is Burns and uh, or, uh, Crosby and... Um, uh, the, the, Stills and Nash. Yes, it's Crosby, Stills and Nash kind of comedy. It's a road movie. It's planes, trains, and automobiles with Steve Martin and John Candy. And again, this one's got some uh, areas of uh, absurdity in it. You know, like where where are your hands? Oh, they're in between two pillows. Those aren't pillows. Ah! Uh, still cracks me up today. Or when John Candy tries to sell shower curtain rings as fashion accessories. Uh, very very funny. Uh, but I think what is what makes this so funny is a guy who is, and I don't want to say oafish, uh, but a guy who uh, I guess lives life to his fullest, who meets a guy who's relatively conservative and how they are forced to be together so that they can get home for Thanksgiving. And then as the story progresses, you suddenly realize that, oh my gosh, this is a tragic story of what happened to John Candy's wife in the movie. And then at the end, it's all happy because they've become really close friends. And you wonder if the if the Thanksgiving after this movie takes place, if they still got together or, you know, what happened. Uh, but I just there's something about planes, trains and automobiles that uh, really kind of uplifts you, even if you're kind of uh, initially um, aligning yourself with with Steve Martin's character of, oh, my gosh, this guy's so annoying. Can he just, you know, stop being the most annoying passenger on this plane or on this train <laughs> or in this automobile? And um, it's just great. And, and probably the most brilliant scene that I think is set up so well is the car sequence where they're driving and they're getting tired and everybody's starting to nod off. And um, at one point, I think John Candy is smoking a cigarette. He flicks it out the window and it goes into the back seat. And then he gets really sleepy and is starting to fall asleep and he gets turned around and um, they're on the road the wrong way. And this is a sequence that builds up where you know they're on the road the wrong way. And then the semi-truck sequence where Steve Martin looks at John Candy and he's just the devil laughing. But the best part is, and the joke pays off, like 
feels like 10 minutes later where they pull over at the side of the road after all of this has happened and they're laughing about almost getting killed. And then the car ignites because of the cigarette that was thrown in the back seat, you know, 10 minutes before. And it is just so funny to see that gag pay off. Uh, it's just it's just so well placed. Plain Streets and Automobiles, a fantastic comedy. Again, totally worth seeing. 1987. I think all of my movies have been 1980 movies, except maybe my last movie when we get to our number ones. Which hey, we are finally into our number ones. And Rodrigo, what do you have for your number one comedy movie category? Uh, what I want to know is, uh, like, who are you guys? Who are you guys hanging out with? Like, you'll have one where it's like, I don't know if, like, you might say this is not a comedy, and I'm like, you guys are hanging out with some negative Nancys. It's like, oh, comedy's yeah. like super broad. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. No, this. I mean, I think I have run into many people who are like, because of the sad, saddish ending of yeah. uh, planes, trains, and automobiles, they really look at that as more of a more more drama than comedy. And I'm like, no, this is totally comedy, and then with a little bit of drama thrown in. So that you uh, you empathize so, and feel for for John Candy's character. Yeah, it's I, a classic screwball comedy. Yeah, yeah, is yeah. What it is. Yeah, I think when they tried to pull off The Martian as a comedy, that was a stretch. <laughs> but I, I think most of the stuff in this uh, in this show is pretty safe, including my number one. Okay, let's see. No one. Okay. Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey. There you go. Well, okay. <laughs> um, I see. I could have been. I could have done the controversial thing and had an American werewolf in London in my thing. And then we could have gotten it like, is it too scary to be funny, too funny to be scary? Ah, let's not worry about it today. But uh, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey is an incredibly absurd movie. That's why I like it. Yep. Um, it is, if you've seen uh, uh, Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, it's a sequel to Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. Um, in which our main characters travel not just back and forth uh, through time, but they also go to the afterlife, um, and they also uh, meet space aliens. And it's it's basically taking the like very thin veneer of an educational uh, comedy mm-hmm. that the first one had, and just like chucking that away, and then just filling it up more with more nonsense. Um, <laughs> there is. There is a very unfortunate moment, and I, it's, it's sad, and I feel like I have to tell everyone that I ever recommend this movie to. Uh, there is a, there's a big homophobic slur, like basically mm-hmm. right in the middle of this movie. And if that's a, um, a deal breaker, if that's a deal breaker for you, I totally understand. You know, I was like, no, no pressure from me. But uh, if you can, if you can roll with it and see that you know i mean it's 1991 we weren't there yet yeah well and that's um, the problem with the first film right is that they say that yep, a lot yep. not just and, one and, time and in fact, but a lot in fact that they don't say it a lot they say it once in the first movie as well and the second time in the second movie it's a callback to the first movie oh yeah yeah so uh bill and ted <laughs> phase the music coming out like next year i think uh we'll we'll see if they decide to do away with that running joke yeah um but uh yeah overall the message of the movie is really good it's cute uh these guys uh our protagonists are very well-meaning idiots <laughs> and so anytime they screw up it's funny when they succeed it it feels amazing um they uh they have to come up with complex plans to beat a villain who actually is intelligent um and the the way that they succeed is by just kind of following their own stupid logic 
you know, what's the only way to beat evil robot versions of us? Of course, it's to build good, good robot versions of us, yeah. right? So, uh, yes, Bill and Ted's Bogus Journey, definitely one of my favorites. Uh, still cracks me up to this day. I'll put it on anytime. And, uh, you know, also also a very, very quotable movie. Mm-hmm. Hey, you want to play 20 questions? Oh, you cut out there. Sorry. <laughs> uh, the internet sucks. <laughs> uh, yes, and also station. Um, yeah. uh, the weirdest in- exchange I had this week, and this maybe shows maybe people don't know the inspiration for Bill and Ted. Uh, they put out a, they released a teaser poster for B- Bill and Ted 3. Which uh-huh. had the, you know, the phone booth being struck by lightning and it said, you know, coming 2021 or whatever it is. And someone replied back to me saying, oh, so we're going to have to explain what this thing is to all the youngs. And somebody, before I could respond. I almost swore. <laughs> before I could respond, somebody else kindly went in and said, um, have you ever heard of Doctor Who? That's how you explain it to them. And in fact, that's where this, uh, this movie, you know, franchise got its start was let's make an American parody of Doctor Who. Well, uh, supposedly they ended up going with a phone booth because originally the, the original script called for a van and they were like, we don't want to make this too much like Back to the Future. <laughs> yeah, there you go. So, yeah, if you, can, if you understand what Doctor Who is, I think you'll have no problem understanding Bill and Ted uh, Bogus Journey or Excellent Adventure or Face the Music when it finally comes out. So... Good one. That's a good number one for you, Rodrigo. Ashley, what do you have for your number one? My number one is one that some people won't think is funny. And uh, that's a you problem. That's not an Ashley problem. It's Harold and Maude. And it's uh, very funny and also very sad, I think. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Harold and Maude is the story of what if an 18-year-old fell in love with an 80-year-old and then she died. But... Harold is a weirdo who's obsessed with death and he's obsessed with faking his own death. And you kind of have to live in that reality for a while and say, is he really killing himself or is he just messing with his mom? Also, be nice to your parents. You're lucky if you make it to 18 and they don't kill you because you're a jerk. (laughs) Sorry about it. And Harold exemplifies that. But by the same token, he's very rich and he's very sheltered. And Maude, who... Is you know relatively poor by comparison, but has spent her life going out and seeing the world. Is rich and she's beautiful and she's full of experience and she's exciting and she's played by Ruth Gordon, aka the evil Satan lady from Rosemary's Baby, which tickles me to absolutely no end. And also, do yourself a favor and Google Ruth Gordon Young because she's stunning when she's eighty and she's stunning when she's twenty. And it's one of the few love stories that even though it's a very contrived circumstance under which the characters come together and you can probably guess the main beats of it, it's so wonderful and so charming that I think if you've never seen it before, you will find yourself quite moved. And there's a reason why uh, film dorks always put this on their list. I used to always have this on my shelf. When it was cool to have a lot of physical media. And uh, more than once when I brought somebody home, they commented on how cool it was that I had Harold and Maude. So if you're looking to pull, I highly recommend buying a copy of Harold and Maude and putting it on your shelf. It will make people like you. (laughs) And that's why we all buy movies. That's right. Yep. All right, Matthew, what is your number one? 
Ruth Gordon, by the way, is ridiculously gorgeous when she's oh, young. Yeah. She's beautiful when she's old, but when she's young, you're just like, is this 1920? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's a thing. My number one should be no surprise to anyone who's ever actually spoken to or listened to me speak. Um, spoken to me and or listened to me speak. That was a complicated sentence. Nonetheless, you got through it, one. though. Yeah, well, it's, it's what I do. I am known for the interesting word usements, what I structure. And so my number one is to being... Real Genius, 1985, the movie that really, I think, I don't know if everybody does this, but there are times in my life where I know I have chosen a particular fictional template upon which to model certain aspects of my behavior. And again, this may just be me. I've spoken to other people and they look at me like I've grown a second head when I say this, but there was a time in my life when... I said, you know, I'm going to talk like Val Kilmer in that one movie about space lasers. And 25 years later, I'm on like 19 podcasts a week. And Steven is like, hey, come be on this new podcast. And I'm like, okay, great. And he's like, oh, you can't be stupid. I'm like, oh, well, that's not going to work out. But (laughs) nonetheless, real genius. That's why he's only on five podcasts a week. (laughs) How dare you, sir? Don't you even, <laughs> don't try and neg me. I, ah, oh, geez, after 15 years of this show, you know, you'd think I'd get used to it. But no, every time it comes you, to the You quick, always walk into that door. And yes, yeah, then you slam it right on my feet. And it's no wonder that my toes hurt at all given times. But here's the thing about Real Genius. Real Genius is a movie about smart people that feels like the people are really smart. And as a person who is not nearly as smart as I want to think I am, but much smarter than you probably think I am, I enjoy when something feels authentic, when they're showing you, you know, a character who's meant to be intelligent. And you're like, yes, I truly believe that Chidi Anagonia is really, really a brilliant man. I truly believe that Chris Knight is smart as all hell. But I also feel like Chris Knight is a real jerk. And so, again, you know, in in my late... 40s, I look at this film and say, I don't want to be this person. I certainly don't understand why I ever wanted to be this person, but I do appreciate why he's funny. It's a very dry sort of humor in this movie, but then it crosses over into the ridiculous. And again, it is so quotable. Literally, you, I can probably not go 24 hours without quoting this movie. And it's not even intentional now. It's just ingrained into my psyche. I say things and people are like, is that from real genius? I'm like, I suppose it is. And that's really nice. That's the kind of thing that you love from a movie where it's so much fun that you just kind of want to bring it with you wherever you go. And you get to wander around and, you know, ask people if it's a launch problem or a design problem. And that's why real genius is my number one. All right. My number one, 1978. I think this is the first movie my parents were okay. You know, it, I think it came out as a, if I'm not mistaken, an R-rated movie, but edited for television, all the bad stuff was uh, taken out. So it was okay to watch on television, and my parents were okay watching it, maybe because they came from that generation of, of uh, college kids. National Lampoon's Animal House, directed mm. by John Landis, uh, Harold Ramis, and uh, Doug, Doug Kinney. If you've ever seen that uh, movie on Netflix, I highly recommend it. Uh, Chris Miller also uh, doing that, uh, writing on that. Um, I don't know. 
what needs to be said about Animal House. It is totally counterculture uh, against the norm. It is totally let's make fun of the of the straights of the of the the pencil necked geeks, uh, the people who don't understand what it means to live. Uh, all being overshadowed by, I think it was Vietnam, right? Or is it Korea? I think Korea in this one. No. Is it Korea or Vietnam? It would be the, early Vietnam because okay. this is a movie taking place in the 60s. Yeah, yeah, Okay, so yeah. So it, was, it takes uh, place in like 62 because yeah. uh, Kennedy is still the president. Right. And so just the antics that these guys get into uh, as they go through college life. Now, fortunately or unfortunately, I've never had... Um, access to a fraternity like like these guys like, no one has had access to a fraternity. yeah so i think that that's probably where part of the fun is um but then watching them get sent on uh, double secret probation and then retaliate and then go out and get drunk and go to bars and start fights and start brawls and um all these things are kind of i guess kind of makes it kind of fun um if you ask me what comedy do you want to sit down and watch, I would probably pick Animal House just because of the weirdness that goes on in with it. The music certainly helps make this a fun movie, uh, but I just think that the the comedic moments are certainly well done and well timed. And I think the reason why this worked in an edited version is because this is just a series of little vignettes that string together to make a much larger story. And so any little vignette you could pull out and get a good laugh uh, out of it. So Animal House, National Lampoon's Animal House is my number one comedy. I, I really just enjoy that. It's probably the one, if you look in my playlist, I've played more than any of these other ones. Although to be honest, I think Better Off Dead probably comes pretty close to being played as many times as, as Animal House has. Um, but this is one that I think is uh, certainly something that I think you'd get a big chuckle out of when you're in high school watching the unrated, the um, unedited version. Yeah, there's some gross-out humor there, but it's it's the beginning of gross-out humor, so yeah, it's yeah. not like it's not over-the-top gross-out. Right, right, right. Look, uh, guess what I am? Is it? <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and it does feature John Candy or not John Candy, um, John, John Belushi. Belushi. Yeah, uh, both died too young. Uh, but yeah. um, both Ofish. Uh, mm-hmm. You look up Ofish J. It says John Candy, John Belushi. Yeah, sure. and uh, it's just great. And many of these actors you still know today. Uh, you can go and look at this, and it's basically a who's who of today's current big, big wig celebrity uh, stars. Um, I think that's Kevin Bacon's first movie. I think it is as well. Yeah, Kevin Bacon. Uh, you've got the Donald Sutherland in here as the uh, high teacher that's trying to sleep with Indiana Jones's wife. Uh, <laughs> it's got. It's got. She that, has a name. It's got uh, that one guy from Saint Elsewhere. And uh, so much Steven more. First, all it's got, in this it's movie. It's got uh, Amadeus in there. Yes, it does. It does Salieri, have Amadeus in there. Know. No, it's Amadeus. Uh, but yes, it's all in this movie called Animal House. Uh, my number one movie. I think you should go check it out. And I think if you have watched all twenty-five of these movies, no, yeah, twenty, yeah, twenty-five of these movies, three, four, 20. no, twenty movies. Eh, 20. I'm sure we've mentioned some of the others. Ghostbusters was Matthew, mentioned. Matthew's it was one that dropped off my list. Um, Mine too, actually. Yeah. Uh, but I did. I did know that uh, Matthew's number one was going to be on the list. I kind of picked oh, that one. Yeah, I, I was surprised. Oh, yeah. I was surprised. Head didn't fall on the list. Head's not really a comedy. Uh, Head is uh, well, experimental. Uh, yeah, it's one of those weird uh, kind of. 
drugged out movies. It what it really wants to be is a documentary, but a documentary in a very surrealistic take. So mm. I don't ever laugh at Head. Head is not really <laughs> all that funny a movie. It's amusing. I enjoy yeah. it. Okay, so maybe but that's where you get the chortle. Suicide and ends with four suicides. So you tell me if it's funny. <laughs> well, I don't know. Uh, okay, if you've seen all of these movies on our list, then I'm sure you're having a much better day, maybe a much better week. Um, but if you it's haven't like 42 seen, hours of movies, it's probably at least a day and a half. Yeah. So if you haven't seen these movies, what are you waiting for? Get started and uh, do enjoy. And we'll be back next time to talk more interesting things. You know, we got to do that uh, top five worst things Matthew's ever done. But that's coming up uh, on a future episode. Why? Done or because said, that's everybody, a list. everybody loves a list. This podcast is copyright 2020 by Major Spoilers Entertainment, LLC.